Welcome, everybody, to the Church Innovations Podcast. I am Casey Sugden, joined today again by Todd Bolsinger, author of Canoeing the Mountains, and our very own Patrick Kiefert. Rachel is not with us today. She had other ministry obligations, but we look forward to her being back with us next time. Today's topic, we are talking further with Todd about his book and specifically things that he may have learned since the writing of it and uh, what we might expect uh, should there be a sequel. Pat, I uh, leave it to you to open us with prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, you give your church uh, servants, leaders, and move them by your spirit to give us insight into where we truly are now in you. Uh, bless this time with um, Todd, surely one of those gifts you've given to us, that we might all learn more deeply and fully. What he's been learning since uh, he uh, has been conversing all over the world about his book, Canoeing the Mountains. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Todd. Uh, so what um, the big question today, what have you learned since? Uh, we won't ask you anything contradictory yet, but uh, in addition to your uh, wonderful work for pastors in a new era. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's actually, that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking. I, um, I just wrote a new manuscript for a book that's coming out later this year that was really built on the conversations that I had along the way. And um, when I wrote Canoeing the Mountains, I said that Canoeing the Mountains came out of my uh, working in my own denomination, I'm a Presbyterian, and working as a consultant with other churches in mostly mainline churches. And what I kept hearing was a common refrain. I kept hearing pastors say to me, um, seminary didn't prepare me for a world like this. Um, so that was the common refrain. So Canoeing the Mountains was written out of my attempt as a person who was both a pastor and then into the seminary of saying, okay, what kind of leadership formation do you need in a world like this, in a world that, that, what is, that, that seminary hasn't been giving? And so, Canoeing the Mountains was written all about the notion that the big, uh, big transition from, you know, into uncharted territory was the transition of moving from a Christendom world to a post-Christendom world. Um, a Christendom world where culture supports Christianity, where Christianity has a home court advantage, where Christianity has privilege and place, even by people who are not Christians, to Christianity feeling more and more as if it's marginalized or diminished or less relevant. So that was the big change, and that was the big transition. And a lot of the time along the way, I discussed how change was happening happening rapidly, that you couldn't predict the future, and so you can't make a big pivot and then say, now we've got a person perfectly done, but that you actually have to learn how to change in a rapidly changing world. I would say that what I've learned since it's been published, that was in 2015, so I published, is I completely underestimated how fast the world would be changing, <laughs> that, that, that I literally, uh, was talking to people who felt like they were going through a once-in-a-lifetime change, um, Christendom to post-Christendom. And now what I learn is I am working with and coaching 
pastors and organizational leaders who are going through rapid change. I mean, we are uh, recording this right in the middle of what people are calling a massive black swan event, the coronavirus. Um, I have had, in the last three days, I have had uh, eight of my speaking engagements for the next two months canceled, and then I have had three requests in the last 24 hours to either do something uh, online, a webinar, a podcast, or to write something that could be for people who won't have a chance to hear me speak. Um, so even that, like, so even the technology we're using today is podcasting, even the conversations that we're having, uh, even the way in which, I mean, if you'd have told me uh, three months ago that there would be a Sunday in the middle of March where every church in America, just about every church in America would shut down and would live stream uh, um, or, you know, podcast their services, I would have told you, not only are we crazy, but we're not equipped for. And last Sunday, I sat in my house and literally watched worship services all over the globe in just one after another. I, I church shopped, if you will, I church hopped um, from one service to another, literally from Tokyo to New York City to California to um, Montana. I mean, it was amazing. So that rapid change, I underestimated even then. Um, uh, one little example about this, and I can give you a couple of other things that work, is um, when I wrote Canoeing the Mountains, I wrote a chapter title that for all kinds of obvious reasons, just because it would be controversial, I never would have written because I never would have imagined that it would actually be anything controversial when I wrote the phrase, the mission trumps. And when you realize that in 2014, when I was writing a book that would come out in 2015, no one would have connected that word to our president and to how people have very strong polarized views about our president. And so um, that just even from the time I wrote it to when it was published, um, there was a big change. And by the time it was published and now being read by people, an even bigger change. Um, so. So this is the, the world we're in. Um, the rapidly changing nature means that the developing adaptive capacity is now a necessity it is, um, that is going to be with us for our lifetime. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the first thing. Uh, I, I, I can pause, but I've got a couple of other things I could say as well. So. What's uh, very interesting to me about that is precisely the rate of the uh, the social imaginary, yeah. uh, as uh, Charles Taylor talks about it, the rate of that uh, change with respect to especially these really important issues yeah. about the relationship between uh, the church and culture and God in the world, uh, the, the, the rate of that change has been astounding. Uh, I can remember when I was a graduate student and uh, learning about, well, uh, studying people like Charles Taylor as he helped me understand uh, Hegel's Chinese, as my teacher, Paul Ricoeur, referred to it, um, reading Hegel, that, that these sorts of things take place behind our back. And they're already taking place, but then all of a sudden something, bang! Uh, happens and obviously something bang has happened. Uh, when I uh, first came to the seminary, I tried to convince people to get interested in this challenge of adaptive uh, change. That what we were facing was 
was I didn't have answers. Yeah. Uh, and that was part of what made it both exciting and frightening. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I gave a lecture at Oxford here a couple of years back uh, that came out of my same experience that you've had uh, working with uh, church leaders who were functioning uh, in kind of two separate emotional spheres. And this is what I want to have you talk about a lot. Um, I said it was between denial and panic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in public, uh, not unlike some leaders in the political sphere, the first move is denial. Mm -hmm. We don't really have a big problem here. This, you know. Uh, we we can handle this. There's no big problem. Uh, and then uh, privately or in small groups, there was the panic. Well, we don't even know what the issue is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, what I find amazing about, let's say, someone like uh, Rowan Williams and 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 Justin uh, Welby, here are two archbishops, two very different parts of that uh, tradition. One, an Augustinian Catholic, liberal Catholic, and the other, uh, uh, an evangelical uh, uh, bishop, archbishop, both totally uh, agreeing with this assessment yeah. when I gave this lecture. Yeah. Uh, now, this is where I just think your experience in your book is so powerful. Because when you're working as a consultant, you're trying to create that holding environment that uh, Ron Heifetz talks about, yeah. uh, that liminal space where it's all right to say those things. Yeah. To talk about the fact that, yeah, we, 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 we don't want to look like we're panicked in the public sphere. Uh, you know, we... I don't know how many times I've listened to an executive presbyter or a bishop say to a pastor, uh, you, you, you need to have an unanxious presence. You know, they, they'd read Generation to Generation by Ed Friedman, but they obviously didn't get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Right. Patting them on the shoulder or even in, their, uh, even in their prayers, you know, saying, now, 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 you know, mm -hmm. just have a non-anxious presence. Well, you got to be kidding me. Uh, yeah. This is any true assessment of my circumstance is um, life or death. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And so anxiety goes up. I'd like to hear, because I know you can do this. I'm on a board of a Christian ministry in the national parks, and you did a wonderful job as a consultant mm -hmm. for us in our transition uh, to new leadership. And I watched you do this. I'd like to have you talk about that. Yeah. Uh, how do you uh, face the fact that, of course, anyone who's a decent leader and realistic uh, uh, about the circumstance has to say, we don't have answers. Right. We can't pretend to be the experts. And not only that, there's no one we can go to. Yeah. And yet we still have to lead. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, I mean, again, some of the, some of the learnings from when the book was published were really reinforced. If anything, I, I, like I said, I think I underestimated them. They're even more um, 
realistic for me. So think about this notion alone. If we're in the middle of this conversation about the coronavirus, and one of the concepts that's really clear that I believe about in the church is the future is here, it's on the margins. Like that comes from uh, one yep. of the people I respect, Dave Gibbons, who runs a uh, literally a multi-ethnic intergenerational congregation in um, in Orange County, California. So he was he was ahead of his time uh, establishing a church that literally had no building. Um, it had people had to get a they had to get a fax or a um, a text every single day um, because this is before social media. Every week he'd have to put it out to his people of where they were going to be meeting. So here I love that twenty years ago. He was leading a church that is literally like most churches are becoming today, right? Um, so the notion that um, the future is here, but it's just on the margins means that any place that I'm standing, I think is the center of the world. So I think my context, my location. So if I'm in a university or if I'm in a denomination, we think our world is the center of the world. If you look around us, everything looks the same. But if you look to the few, if you look to the margins, so for many of our leaders, how they're responding to the coronavirus is they're going, we're looking at Wuhan, China. We're looking at Italy. We're looking at places like Singapore and South Korea. And we're realizing the way they're responding gives us a map. So uh, we could respond and uh, we could look at something like Wuhan, China and say, well, we don't live in that kind of society. We could never lock a bunch of people up or we could quarantine people. So Italy doesn't. And so they end up with um, drastic problems that now they have to be even more severe. Where South Korea, that has as much democracy and as much industry as as United States, makes some decisions and they see the number of cases go down. So now we're sitting here in a very complex place like the United States and leaders are having to use every bit of trust they have to convince a bunch of people that while the outbreak is still small, we are days away from it being a catastrophe and do you trust me or not? Like, like literally, do you trust me to close down all the schools, close down all the bars, close down all the restaurants or not? And that so trust is more important than ever. And the only way you can lead off the map is people deeply trust you on the map. And people, you know, have tended to trust certain voices more than others. And you can see that in real time in things like the stock market or in real times in terms of people's compliance. So one of the parts of creating a holding environment is holding environments start being built long before there's a crisis. And you build, and a holding environment is building a trustworthy relational space so that when the heat is turned up, we can contain it. So I use the example of a crock pot all the time, right? Uh, almost everybody who lives in any kind of winter environment or has a busy family gets a crock pot because when your life is busy, you need to be able to have something cooking all day long when you're not home. So that has to be a completely trustworthy environment where you can put in meat and vegetables and uh, some kind of liquid and you can turn it into dinner. If it, if you can't trust that crock pot, you can't leave your house. So it has to be trustworthy while you're there watching it. And it has to then be trustworthy when you, when you go into this liminal space of leaving it. And what it means is that the transformation happens slowly over time with the right amount of heat over the right amount of time. And you can't just crank it up because it'll burn it, it'll scorch it, no one will eat it, it'll feel bitter. And the other part is you can't leave it so low that it never transforms, it never cooks. And I think most of our church leaders are so allergic to conflict or pain 
or uh, heat, like, like healthy conflict or moderate anxiety as the nations uh, talk about it, that we keep the temperature so low, we keep everybody so comfortable that if you put a stew into a crock pot at one degree above room temperature, it will spoil before it cooks. So it'll become toxic before it becomes transformed. And many of our churches, that's what's happened, is that they are toxic because they can't handle any conflict and they can't handle any uh, heat. And so the heat that could transform them as a community, they are not been able to develop. And so- Let me, really let me interrupt there just a moment because I totally agree with this analysis. Uh, I was caught in that terrible circumstance. I'm, I'm a, I've been mentored by Pete Stanky. Yeah. Uh, yeah fellow Texan. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and I was so disturbed. Oh, must've been 25 years ago when I saw his really good work following Murray Bowen mm -hmm. uh, was being used to do precisely what you're describing, keeping the temperature so low I called it tranquilizing the church. Today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rather than using those great uh, uh, skills and insights that Pete was teaching to actually uh, generate the kind of conflict that brings about healthy change. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And that's, so, so what happened is, what happens very often is we revert to the status quo. We want normalcy so badly. You know, so even even today, we're in the middle of these conversations about the church. I would say that um, one of the parts that I'm really aware of is it was easy 20 years ago for churches that were more conservative theologically to say that the decline of the church is tied to liberalism. Like, right. look who's look who's declining. It's all of the liberal mainline denominations. Kelly well, wrote a book saying why conservative churches are growing, yeah. although there's no evidence for it. Even exactly. then, there wasn't. Right. right. Yeah. So, but there was just, there was this idea, this idea that it was a common idea because there were mega churches, but when they started, when they began to recognize that the trends are exactly the same. So I've, I've said that one of the parts that I've learned since the book has been published is in 2015, the people who, who rang me or emailed me to want to speak were mostly mainline folk. And they were folks who knew me, Presbyterians and others. Now I am in, in some of the most conservative denominations five years later. Asking, having the exact same conversations. I say, I get to talk to people who will not talk to each other. Um, I've been in a UCC uh, church, um, and a, a UCC meeting outside of St. Louis, Missouri that was held in a Knights of Columbus Hall, and I have been with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I have been with Methodists all over the, over the South and Episcopalians in the East, and I have been with um, Brethren Church in the middle of the country. Like, I get to talk to everybody because the common experience is the changing world. And that is so common that it doesn't matter your denominational background or your um, theological convictions. Those become important in your response, but the context is the same. It's like, the, it's like blaming the coronavirus on a certain group of people. Like it's just coronavirus hits humans. And so, and so any uh, a reversion back to kind of old models are not just not helpful. So uh, I, I want to go back to my main question because uh, you really put your finger on it. Uh, I mean, you are really good at creating that holding environment. And mm -hmm. you've said to us, uh, both in the book and now, 
uh, you know, that begins before you show up. You have to uh, prove your trustworthiness on the map before you can move in and invite people to trust you off the map. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a bit more about how you do that? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I think you knew one person on our board fairly well. Right. That brought your name forward. It was obviously high trust there. Yeah. And I knew the book, so I said, yeah, well, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, obviously you've done something more before you walked in that room with us. Well, well so the, the way you build a holding environment is built on two things. It's built on credibility and then credibility that leads to personal trust, right? So credibility is my professional trust. In one sense, it's, it's when you walk into your doctor's office and you see your doctor has uh, heavy furniture and has diplomas on the door on the board that say, you know, magna cum laude of this, summa cum laude of that, board certified this, board certified that. But when you go through a crisis, you want a doctor that's not just technically competent. You actually want a doctor who actually cares about you. You don't want a doctor who just says, oh, you'd be great for my clinical trial, right? And so, so when you go through a crisis, there needs to be a combination of technical competence, credibility, and, and for pastors, you know, if we just talk about pastors for a while, that means you really have to take seriously that you've been entrusted with the, with the text, biblical texts, you've been trusted with traditions, you've been entrusted with a community that has a history and that has a set of relationships, you've been, com- you've been entrusted with people's souls. You are oftentimes invited into situations that nobody else is invited into. Um, I would say that as a pastor, I felt like I was the last invited gift to, guest to every holy party someone's bedside, someone's birthday party, someone's um, anniversary. I mean, the whole family would know each other for years. And I, as the pastor, I got to come sometimes just to bless the food, other times to pray with people before they die. Like it was stunning. But I had to be competent there. I want to go to that one just for a bit before you go on, obviously, to your second piece. Uh, I am amazed at how few pastors understand at root their their responsibility their calling as a spiritual leadership yeah yeah. and you just described that uh, beautifully this is about the care of souls yeah yeah Uh, you know the the church has faced worse circumstances than this it may be a while back (laughs) for our traditions but this call uh, to care for souls. Yeah. Which, of course, I, I know I want to have you talk a lot more because I know you're working on this. Begins with, you know, our own yeah. care of our own soul. And yes. uh, th- that is a huge authority in times of massive change. Yes, yes. Well, the way to think about this is, ask. I often ask myself the question, what is my assignment? Like, really, what have I been called to do? What have I been asked to do? Um, I have not been asked to be a person who perfectly predicts the future. Um, I have not been asked to be a person who figures out, um, you know, uh, how to predict the stock market, like I, or how to predict employment, or um, I, I've not been asked how to manage crisis care or health care, or to make a decision about uh, what, whether the CDC recommendations are accurate or not. What I've been called to do is to engage a group of people who trust me and have entrusted me to be their pastor, to be their shepherd who leads them, 
Now, it's interesting. I don't think a shepherd is just simply a pastoral task. I think shepherd is a leadership task. Oh, yeah. And that's because in the scriptures, shepherds were, was the metaphor that was used in the Hebrew scriptures for military leaders and kings. Shepherds led. What makes, a, what makes a military leader or a king a shepherd is that they personally care for their flock. So that's the other conversation. It's while I am personally caring, I am leading us faithfully in our mission. And while I'm leading us in our mission, I personally care for people. So the other part of added technical competence is relational congruence. I'm the same person in every place as best as I can and I'm with all of my contradictions. And how people experience that is through my empathy. I attune to my people. I have to be empathic with them. I've got to help them understand that I do understand their, their conflicts and their challenges. I may not perfectly get it, but I can attune and like and listen to them. And because I attune to them and I listen to them, then when I say to them, I understand, nevertheless, we have to make this change, they will then trust me. And that's the hard part. That's the, the work of the leader is the leader who has to step into the middle of people's anxiety and, 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 and natural human capacity to pull back and move them forward. I, uh, I have a question about that or a thought that I've had over the last couple of days. Of course, this pandemic uh, tends to accentuate a lot of what is already going on in our hearts, minds, and churches. Um, so whether it is uh, these uh, days that we are currently in, or uh, as you were talking about, just the rapidly shifting landscape of the church in general, how important is uh, that pastor and lay leader uh, response to the shifting in our mentality and our demeanor? And, um, you know, is there are pastors that are meeting this with, uh, it seems like a dirty word now, but excitement at being church in a new age versus, uh, you know, some of the dread and panic and loathing that I've I've seen in my colleagues, how much does our mentality shift the future of the church today? Well, this is, this is a great way to think about this, really, in terms of if, if I get stuck, you know, what do I do? If I'm not sure what to do, what do I do? I go back and say, every single thing that has to happen in my congregation has got to start in me. So if I think about the holding environment, I often say to church to leaders, um, the holding environment is a crockpot. The crockpot has a thermostat. The right amount of heat over the right amount of time will bring transformation. Remember, you don't have your hand on the thermostat. You are the thermostat. What you're able to tolerate, what you're able to engage in personally, others will engage in personally. So if you can say, look, I don't know what the future is coming. I don't know what July is gonna look like. I, I, literally, I'm used to say, I don't know what 10 years or five years are gonna look like. We're literally now making decisions about what are we gonna do in June? Like today it's in March and we're asking June. Um, because I don't, here's what I do know. Here are the core values that are gonna be the same regardless. Here is what's never gonna change about us. We, whether, we have a, um, whether we are able to gather on Sunday morning in a building or whether we are able to have any of our program, we are going to be about loving God and loving our neighbor. That doesn't change. Jesus said that is the center of our work. 
We're going to do it the way we do it. We have a DNA as an organization. We have traditions. So one of my, one of my students, she's in New York City. She's leading a revival of a church in a section of New York City, an Episcopal church that is basically close to closing its door. She has a small group of people, and this thing could kill them. This, this literally, not gathering. So she basically just set up an iPhone in her apartment and said, if nothing else, twice a week, we're going to do Compline together. And she just leads them on Facebook Live and Compline. And she had more people on the Compline service than she had in her worship services. And so all of a sudden, she is pastoring not only New York, but she was pastoring people all over the country who just wanted to tune in and say the Compline service twice a week. And now we see pastors doing this all over the place. Like all of a sudden, the ministry is it is it's got a different opportunity. And what is her name? Her name is Christine Lee, and she leads a church in um, Episcopal Church. She was the first Korean American woman Episcopal priest in. in I, that. I I recall. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She's and it's amazing. And so so that so well, well, I guess I'd say one last thing I've learned that I think is really important, and this ties into what you just asked me. If the Canoeing the Mountains was written because I heard a bunch of people say to me, the seminary didn't prepare me for this. I have a new book coming out later this year called Tempered Resilience. And it's about the resilience that's needed to face the resistance that comes from your own people when you're leading change. The, the soul-sucking experience for a leader isn't, it's hard out there. It's my people, it's hard in here, it's hard inside. My people are resisting me. They, they now doubt me. They're mad at me. They're angry at me. Um, and so I had a leader say to me, and this is the, this, I've heard this many times, a leader said to me, I don't, I don't doubt that I can learn adaptive change. I wonder if I can survive it. And what most leaders are experiencing isn't, oh my gosh, I need a blueprint for perfectly figuring this out. It's that I need resilience to stand calmly with my people and stay connected to them. Um, Ed Friedman talks about a failure of nerve where we give in to the anxiety of the people and we go back, like the, the temptation to go back to Egypt when you're in the wilderness. I think there's also a deep failure of heart that happens at this moment where you find yourself so angry and so bitter at the resistance of your people that you disconnect from them. It's Moses asking God, really, if you want me to stay with these people, how about instead you kill me now, Right. And so there's those two parts. It's the temptation to have a failure of nerve, which is to go with the anxiety back to Egypt, or the temptation to have a failure of heart, which is where you want to abandon your call because you, you are so hurt and, so, um, and just feel so beaten down. And so the, the, what needed in adaptive moments, especially like this, is to develop the resilience and what I call the tempered resilience. It's not a sledgehammer. It's a chisel that can transform the resistance into something of the hope. Beautiful. Yes, thank you for that. And I certainly look forward to both reading that and getting you on the podcast again once that comes out for another uh, breakdown and further information of it. Um, as uh, we're being respectful for your time, Todd, is there anything else that you want to leave us with today before we close up? You know, if I could just, here's, here's a, just one resource I would just want to offer people. Um, it's simple as this. If they text the word canoeing, just the word canoeing, C-A-N-O-E-I-N-G, canoeing, to 66866, 
too many sixes in a row, 66866. Um, what, what happens is they will get an opportunity to get a resource that takes a digital resource they can use right there on their computer that will take them through these adaptive uh, steps that, uh, on something we're doing at Fuller. So just the word canoeing to 66866 and people can get a resource that will give them to help them learn and, and just keep working on these tools, this tool set, this uh, skill sets. Perfect. Never more vital than it, uh, than it seems today. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you, Todd, for uh, working uh, through some of the new things that you learned with us, and Patrick for engaging in, in that dialogue as well. Thank you to our listeners for checking us out and uh, remaining faithful during this time. Um, I ask, Todd, would you please close us in prayer? Indeed. Indeed. So dear God, for all of the people who have entrusted their um, skill development, their pastoral development to uh, Church Innovations and to Pat's leadership for all these years, I ask you to bless them at this moment. I pray that the fruit of Pat's work over the last 30 years would now um, become evident in a church that sees a harvest of joy because people have been tilling the soil and planting the seeds and watering and growing deep roots. And I pray that you will bless this ministry and bless those who hear this, that this would become a moment where the church um, not only rises to the occasion, but demonstrates the difference of the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And I ask your blessing upon all of us that we might trust in you more deeply and in trusting in you be more faithful so that you know, your kingdom will come, your will will be done, even in this moment, on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you again. And until next time, we are Innovating Church, the Church Innovations Podcast.